Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Nina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Mina and Cadmus identified a way to reach the underpipes hidden beneath the gladiatorial blood pits of Kairos. But the pitmaster, a brutish ogre, was not too keen on letting them go, and a vicious fight ensued. With the pitmaster dead, Mina and Cadmus crawled through endless pipes, fighting their way past mechanical tunnel sweepers to eventually make it into the tunnels of the underpipes. But their troubles had only just begun. Between them, desperately trying to be quiet, Mina and Cadmus are able to half-lead, half-drag the failing Barbican away from the slumbering mass of magic-draining insects massed along the tunnel ceiling. Thank the seven they didn't wake, Mina says in relief, once they have finally reached a safe distance. If they had that effect on Barbican while sleeping, and from several feet away, just imagine what would have happened if they had swarmed us. True enough, Cadmus replies. Thank the bringer, the effects appear to be dissipating now we have put some distance between ourselves and the manor-bane beetles. Cadmus is correct. Barbican is already standing straighter, and his eyes are glowing brighter. Mina gently punches the metal man's arm. You gave me quite a scare there, Barbs. Good to have you back at 100%. Barbican looks at Mina, then down at his arm, then back at Mina. Mina laughs. Well, I guess we'd better keep going. But before we do, there's something I need to do first. She reaches into a coat pocket and fishes out a piece of chalk, which she uses to make a small mark on the tunnel wall. Last time we were down here, I managed to get myself lost within an hour, she explains to Cadmus. Everything looked the same. This time, I plan to mark each junction we take. That way, if we want to retrace our steps, we can. And seeing as we know there is a way out that way, I'd like to know how to get back to it. As they set off, Cadmus wonders out loud, Do you suppose the beetles were related in any way to the glowing insects we saw before? You know, the ones that were attracted to your pistol. Something like a larval stage, perhaps. The pair walk on in companionable silence for some time, content to walk the tunnels, marking their route as they go, until Cadmus notices a shift in Mina's mood. Mina, what is it? Hmm? Mina responds absently. You're frowning. What is it? Oh, I was just thinking about the Whisperer, about why he was killed and why he was killed so publicly, and about the Unseen. How do we track an enemy that can take on any appearance, let alone fight them? It seems an insurmountable task. She sighs. I don't see how I can possibly succeed. Cadmus takes a moment, turning this over in his mind, and finally he says, You know... 
I have seen you overcome the seemingly insurmountable not once, but many times. You are blessed with a boundless ingenuity and perseverance, Mina. Have faith in yourself, and take it one step at a time. Mina is about to reply when Cadmus holds up a hand. Do you hear that? From further ahead comes the faint sound of metal on metal, and they feel a slight vibration underfoot. They move cautiously along the tunnel and begin to make out the murmur of voices. After some distance, the tunnel branches to the left. Peering around the corner, they look out into a huge chamber, the ceiling lost in the darkness above. At the heart of the space is a large collection of ramshackle buildings, fashioned from steel girders and rusting sheets of flat and corrugated metal. Many are several stories high, connected by ladders, gantries and rope bridges, and they are painted in a variety of bright colours. They seem to be centred around a huge cylindrical hub, a ganglia of pipes running into it from all angles. The whole place is alive with activity. Men and women of all ages go about their business, pushing handcarts of foodstuffs, carrying water, tending a forge, working metal. Amidst the industry of their elders, children run and play. A village, Lena whispers, astonished. A whole village, down here in the underpipes. Perhaps we can... She tails off as a group round the corner of one of the buildings. Even from this distance, they are unmistakable. Four figures, clad from head to foot in black oilskin, with hexagonal helmets of metal and glass under their arms. Cadmus takes an involuntary step backwards. Pipe runners! Mina gulps. I think we'd better leave before anyone spots us. But it's far too late for that. The metal gratings at their feet spring open, as the hidden panels in the tunnel walls. Black-clad pipe runners burst forth, surrounding them, pressing in close, pinning arms and removing Mina's pistol before she can react. Cadmus struggles desperately, but to no avail. Hugely outnumbered, and taken completely by surprise, they are captured with ease. The eagle-eared among you will have noticed the lack of teaser this episode. I'd concluded the last episode with the possibility of our heroes being subjected to an angry swarm of magic-munching beetles, but amazingly, my party succeeded at their stealth checks, even Mina, who has disadvantage on that roll because she's stomping around in noisy scale mail. I then rolled up my next scene, but there was nothing there that immediately seemed to work as an intro, and so the intro bit the dust. Let's see if it makes a reappearance next time. I did get some pretty significant stuff from consulting the oracles this session, though. First up, I returned to my Perilous Wilds custom dungeon generator, and I rolled a themed, unique location, including a discovery. The theme was incredible power. The unique location was Faction Base, and the discovery was a book, scroll, or map. We'll come to that in the next scene. I asked for a description, and rolled Innocently Poor, which conjured the image of this dilapidated, cobbled-together collection of buildings clustered round some sort of power hub. And who lives in a house like this? Well, given it was a faction base, and the only other faction we knew of had taken a hell of a beating at the hands of First Mina, and then, so we suppose, the pipe runners, it seemed pretty likely that this subterranean village was the home to everyone's favourite explosive smugglers, the pipe runners. 
but it was only polite that I asked my virtual GM, right? Oh yes, Mythic agreed, definitely pipe runners. Oh, and while we're at it, have yourself a random event. Thanks very much, I said, trying not to sound as nervous as I felt. What sort of event is it? Why, it's an NPC positive event. Who'd have thought it? Mythic replied, all sweetness and innocence. Is it? Really? Mythic, I have a horrible feeling I know the answer to this question already, but just for the sake of completeness, please tell me. Out of the nine possible NPCs this event could relate to, which one is it? Mythic did its best to look as if butter wouldn't melt in its mouth. Well, would you look at that? It's the pipe runners. What are the odds? I did my best not to pick up the smug-looking deck of cards and hurl it out of the window. What are the odds of something good happening to the one set of nasty NPCs we happen to have stumbled upon just one roll ago? Well, maths is not my strong suit, but I think I had something like a 1 in 20 chance of a random event, a 1 in 9 event of it being NPC positive, and a 1 in 9 chance of it being the pipe runners. So I make that 1 in 1620. Goodness, said Mythic, not meeting my eye. What awfully bad luck. Would you like to know the good thing that happened to the pipe runners? I'm sure you're going to tell me, I replied from between gritted teeth, dreaming of petrol and matches. Let's see, said Mythic. Heal suffering. Does that mean anything to you? It does, I sighed. It means the pipe runners have got their healer back. Feeling that I was on a roll, I asked Mythic probably the dumbest question yet. I don't suppose there are any lookouts or guards for this village that might try to capture my group? Oh yes, Mythic replied, exceptionally so, in fact. Then, it helpfully added, do you know there was only a 10% chance of an exceptional yes outcome there? No, I replied, pounding my head furiously against the desk. I think you'll find that was in fact 100%, nailed on, copper-bottomed, cast-iron certainty. Given Mina's sudden change in circumstances, I think it's time to remove the thread, understand inter-house espionage, and to replace it with a slightly more pressing priority, escape the pipe runners. It will come as no surprise to anyone that the chaos factor goes up to six. Let us go, Mina yells, struggling in vain against the hands that grip her tight. The reaction of her captors is not at all what she had expected. With the captives secure, helmets are removed to reveal the faces of cheerful, laughing young men and women. As they lead Mina, Cadmus and Barbican towards the village, they slap one another on the back, and one puts an arm around Cadmus's shoulders. You have returned to Sheila, the pipe runner declares joyfully to cheers from his companions. He cries out, Our healer is back! Mina glances over at Cadmus in confusion, but he's not looking at her. She follows his gaze, and her face goes as white as his. As they round a lookout tower and near the village, a horrific sight has come into view. Spread-eagled against a metal frame hang the remains of what was once a man. But what these people have done to him... The skin has been flayed from the body, the eyes, the fingers mutilated. Mina looks away in disgust, but not before registering two facts. From the colours and markings of the peeled-back skin, this man was Hydroclan. And somehow, horrifyingly, he's still alive. A crowd begins to gather as they approach the settlement. 
They are dressed in simple homespun cloths, in muted colours, many showing signs of age and wear. Curious infants peer from beneath mother's skirts. Adults look on, some taciturn or impassive, others as jubilant as the guards, as the trio are dragged towards the central mass of buildings. Everyone is armed, Mina notices. As they draw closer, the source of that underfoot vibration Mina had noticed becomes apparent. The huge, cylindrical edifice around which the settlement has been constructed is clearly some sort of massive power source. It thrums with power, reminding Mina of the construction at the heart of the Hydro-Clan chamber. That memory, the deep bass vibration that grows in intensity as they approach, does nothing to calm her nerves. Umajukti, one of the captains calls out. Come, see who has returned! A curtain is pushed aside, and an elderly figure emerges from one of the makeshift buildings. Though stooped and lined with age, there is an alertness apparent in this woman's eyes and in her movements. She walks with the gnarled wooden cane, the handle worn smooth. An unusual sight, Mina dimly registers, to see wood in this world of steel and brass. The old lady smiles, gap-tooth, and says, We have missed your skills, healer. It is good you have come back to aid us in our struggle. And you have brought allies, fighters, for our cause. Cadmus says nothing, holding himself straight, but Mina can tell he is terrified. The elderly woman seems not to notice, peering at Mina briefly, then staring with open curiosity at Barbican. She prods the steel defender with her stick. This is not one of ours, I think. A story attached, no? One of the pipe runners approaches his leader. The woman carried this, Uma, he says, and hands her Mina's pistol. Uma Jukti turns the heavy object over in crooked fingers, fascinated. You are a maker girl, a healer, and a maker delivered to us. Truly. An auspicious day. Come, we shall speak inside. She turns and makes her way back through the curtain, the pipe runners leading their captives after her. The interior, walls and ceiling, hung with coloured cloth, is a treasure trove of junk. Every spare surface is covered with detritus from the city above, a random collection of household implements, bits of armour, tools, framed pictures, toys, cartwheels, mechanical parts, and countless other objects too numerous to process. And, Mina notices, weapons. Lots of weapons. One whole wall is set aside for what Mina at first takes to be a massive piece of art, at least 20 feet tall, a third of that wide, and a good few feet deep. A huge, tangled collection of wires, narrow pipes, cogs, nuts and bolts, but there's something about the shape of the thing that nags at her inquisitive mind. Her eyes go wide as realisation strikes. A map, she breathes. That's a map of the underpipes. A map of the world, Uma Jukti corrects her as she lowers herself into a large, comfortable-looking seat. There is clearly nothing wrong with the old woman's hearing. A map of the world that matters at any rate. At least this woman is speaking to them. Best to get answers to her questions while she can, Mina reasons. You mentioned a struggle, Uma Jukti, a cause. Who is it that the pipe runners are fighting? Is it Hydra Clan? 
The old woman laughs dismissively. Those fools! A ragged band of deluded fanatics. Nothing more. No, our struggle is against the true enemy, the hated ones. She drabs her stick, first in the direction of Mina and Cadmus, then upwards, towards the ceiling, towards the city. Our war is against your people. Well, I suppose the good news is that we now know what motivates the pipe runners. The bad news is, well, basically everything else. Surely things can't get worse for Mina from this point, right? Well, that's the thing. In this tangled tale, nothing's sure, is it? The unpredictable attracts me. And not just me, humans in general. We humans are programmed to respond to change, like a cat chasing a light pen's little red dot. That change sensitivity is baked into each of our senses. The transition from one state to another, particularly an unexpected one, is what stimulates our neurons, awakes our minds, and brings us to a state of alertness and excitement. It's how humour works. It's why we like to watch competitive sports and why we like to learn. It lies at the heart of arguably the most fundamental element of human intelligence. Storytelling. Playing RPGs, solo or otherwise, is just another way to plug us into that stimulating pattern of change, not only through plot development, but also to the countless random rabbit holes you find yourself exploring along the way. Case in point, I needed a name for this clan's matriarch. I flicked through my copy of Names by the Story Games Name Project, and I quickly came up with Jukti. That name can then serve as a base flavour point, should I ever need to name anyone else in the Piperunner clan. The names book is an essential part of my soloer toolkit, by the way, and the print-on-demand version is super cheap from lulu.com, link in the show notes. But I also wanted a title for this clan leader, and that led me into a 20-minute deep dive into the various names for matriarchs, the etymology of different words for grandmother. Unsurprisingly, there are many fabulous words from around the world. Nana, Mami, Yaya, Tutu, Sobo, the list goes on. These are simple words, intended for ease of use by very young children, and there's something just a little bit magical about them, at least to me. I seriously considered the Eastern European Baba, but eventually rejected that due to the evil witchy baggage it brings to the table, at least for me, and instead I opted for the Afrikaans word, Uma, which has a lovely ring to it, and pairs nicely with Jukti, a soft word, against a hard one, much like the juxtaposition of a smiling old granny leading a crazed clan of torturers. I do love these little learning side quests that a solo game sends me on, trawling through various Google and Wikipedia links in search of appropriate window dressing you almost always find something interesting or fun that you didn't know before. Random side note. I don't know about you, but I got the slight vibe that Uma Jukti seemed to be channeling a bit of Yoda in that last scene, what with the cane and the prodding and all. And perhaps a little bit of Hulk in Glugark last time, and maybe just a hint of Tale of the Manticore in Glugark's club. These sort of geek culture quotes are fun to drop in from time to time. Some are conscious Easter eggs on my part, and some are done without me noticing until later, an unconscious channelling brought on by decades of immersion in geek culture. Back on the topic of scene construction. 
Everything from the cheerful pipe runners to the flayed hydroclanner to the war on the surface dwellers were the result of mythic roles. And the wall art map of the underpipes came from the dungeon discovery I mentioned in the previous scene. The one element of that last scene that was not from Mythic came from Une, the universal NPC engine. I wanted to find out who was leading the pipe runners and rolled Lively Crone as a description. Une then has you roll three motivations for your NPCs and then you try to stitch them together into a personality. For Uma Jukti, I rolled Communicate Disbelief, Conceive Propaganda and Complete Dissonance. Taken in tandem with the mythic roles suggesting she was in conflict with the surface city, this suggested to me that she was engaged in asymmetrical warfare. She was employing classic insurgency tactics, guerrilla warfare, acts of terrorism, even information and disinformation warfare. Very topical, and unsurprisingly so. When playing the word association minigame that is the interpretation of solo RPG oracle results, you often can't help but come up with responses that tie into topics that are preoccupying you. As much as you might wish to keep the real world out of the fantasy one, it does have a way of intruding. Now, no new threads this scene, and, after consideration, no new characters either. We already have the pipe runners. Umajukti can be lumped in with them for now, I think. Chaos goes up to seven. Mina has the old woman talking. Time to press her advantage. A war against the city? Is that why you've been supplying the machine cultists with explosives? You're employing others to fight on your behalf? Or do your people worship this great machine yourselves? Our interests align, the old woman answers, and as she does so, a frown crosses her face. A union of convenience, nothing more. But... I am more interested in what you can do for us, my dear. The healer has already proven his worth, helping my people recover quickly. We are not the only force in the pipes, and with recent events, his skills have been useful. You, though, are something different. A machinist of some skill, it would seem. For all their talk, I suspect the cult of the machine has not a tenth of your talent. And the infernal powder? Mina asks. How have you been able to find a source? The clan matriarch laughs. I am wounded. You would think so little of me that you would expect an answer to that question. But explosives are only one of the weapons at our disposal. And with your arrival, I wonder if we may not have just discovered another... She is cut off as the curtain is pushed aside and a trio of figures stride into the room. Their faces are hidden behind blank metal masks. They wear long leather coats and have metal parts strapped to their bodies. We received word that a surfacer has been found. The machine cultist stares at Mina for a long moment and then says, It is you, the defiler from the airship. Did I not tell you you would not escape the inexorable machine? Did I not tell you you would be disassembled and used for spare parts? The trio draw daggers and make for Mina. Hold! Umajukti's voice rings out and in an instant the cultists find themselves surrounded by oilskin-clad pipe runners, weapons drawn. When she continues, there is ice 
and steel in the old woman's words. These are my prisoners, Brother Cog. They have value to me. I will not see them harmed. Is that clear? This woman has wronged us, the machine cultist retorts, and in so doing she has wronged you, interfering in the holy cause that we both serve. She deserves death. Jukti stands. Mina's pistol still dangles in one hand. This is my place, she says, every word pregnant with menace. And in this place, my word is law. Would the cult of the machine defy that law? For a long, tense moment, the two lock gazes, weighing risk and reward. There is clearly a great deal of pre-existing tension here. This alliance is plainly an extremely uneasy one. For one tantalising instant, it looks as though frustrations will boil over, that a fight will break out. But to Mina's disappointment, the machine cultist lowers his dagger. He indicates to his companions to sheathe their blades, takes one knee and bows his head. Your forgiveness, great Puma. I allowed my human thirst for revenge to cloud my logic. The flesh is weak, and I shall have to atone for my sin against the great machine. He stands and looks at Mina. We will meet again, Defiler, have no doubt. And when your value here is at an end, we will be waiting, endlessly patient. In the end, we are all but cogs in the great machine. With that, the cultist turns, flanked by his companions, and they stalk from the room. Umajukti sits once more, smoothing her skirts. Her smile is back, as if it had never left. Now then, where were we? Okay, Mia Kilpa, that was entirely my fault. What was it I said? Surely things can't get worse for Mina from this point. Well, on a scale from one to monumentally stupid, that comment surely has got to win some sort of prize. I wouldn't call myself a superstitious person, but when it comes to navigating the vagaries of the mythic GM emulator, I counsel wearing a rabbit's foot, knocking on wood, crossing your fingers and tossing salt over your shoulder while pulling on wishbones and avoiding black cats and ladders. Even more important than all of those precautions, however, is not to tempt fate. Fate, like Oscar Wilde, can resist everything except temptation. So it's vitally important that you never, ever say things can't get much worse, because your virtual GM will instantly seize upon this challenge and turn your current shitstorm up to 11. Which is how we find ourselves, with a bad situation made somehow even worse. We have a scene interrupt to thank for the arrival of our favourite techno-murder sect. I drew an NPC action related to the machine cultists and a description of antagonise pleasure. That sounded like they were going to interject themselves into the scene and make everybody's day just a little bit worse. Everything else that transpired from that point onward was down to a series of fate questions. Did they recognise Mina? Did they want her dead? Did Jukti want her alive? And did this cause conflict? Yes, 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 and yes. And this led me to ask two final questions. Was their alliance an uneasy one? 
and did the cultists back down? The answer to both of these questions was exceptional yes. Deep divisions, but also deep deference. In hindsight, my second question should probably have been, does a fight break out? Well, while all of this is bad for Mina, it is good in terms of us getting a better understanding of the world and the way that its actors interrelate. All Mina has to do now is survive long enough to get herself out of this mess. Oh dear, have I just done it again? You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.